Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the Sports Pro Podcast. Now following Brighton's 3-0 defeat that put an end to Arsenal's title hopes, Tom Basson, my normal co-host and I are barely speaking. So this week we brought in a moderator, one who can uh, bring relations back to normal from the Sports Pro team. So welcome Josh Sim, reporter at Sports Pro here to the podcast. Josh, good to have you on board. Thanks for the call up guys. Feels like I've been called up into the big time and excited to dive into the world of sports. It's not the first time we've been called the big time, but it's always welcome. Still feels good. Tom, how are you? You still feeling that sense of elation from the weekend? Well, I've got the sun beating down on my face and it just feels like, um, uh, yeah, I, I really feel really feel like that kind of visualises where I'm mentally at right now, just in the clover after a, a glorious Sunday afternoon where I walked around Islington asking Arsenal fans what the score was. It's a, a tough day, a tough, tough day. Well, if that was the end of Arsenal's season... Um, this week marks the beginning of the WNBA season. So I think we should have a, a bit of a chat about that. Now, Josh, one of the key words on everyone's lips, I think, when it comes to the WNBA is expansion and whether the franchises are going to be expanded over the next couple of years. What's been your take on that? The noise seems to be getting louder and louder for expansion. You just saw the Chicago Sky and the Minnesota Lynx. They played a preseason game in Toronto recently and that got a sold out crowd. So that will undoubtedly sort of feed an appetite in, in Canada and at least Toronto, which is obviously one of the bigger North American markets to sort of get their own team. The NCAA continues to skyrocket, and especially the women's edition when it comes to March Madness. So yeah, it certainly seems like there's a louder noise around expansion, but WNBA seems to be a lot more measured in terms of how they approach it. So we'll see how quickly they go for it. Yeah, that's been kind of a bit of a marked contrast, hasn't it, with the uh, NWSL, which has uh, been rapidly expanding in the last few years in terms of adding new teams and even talking up further expansion beyond the, the existing clubs currently in the league. Whereas the WNBA added the Aces in Las Vegas, but that was more of a rebrand than a new addition. So obviously there's not going to be any new teams for this season, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And with like, as you said, Josh, Toronto, definitely a major market. I saw a lot of positive social media feedback, should we say, about that experience. Obviously they've already got the Raptors there. You'd think that Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment would be interested in adding another team to that already pretty broad ownership group. And big market for basketball, well-known sort of back of women's sports obviously they've got the professional hockey league team there on the women's side so i think that's definitely a market they'll be um, going towards for sure interesting to hear you both say you, you both alluded to i think some of the the pretty strong underlying numbers that the league is posting and there's a fairly strong business case for expansion and it's certainly an ambition that's shared by kathy engelbert the commissioner of the WNBA. so why are they so circumspect to to have expanded the league? There's only been 12 franchises since 2008. As you say, Tom, that's quite a direct comparison with the NWSL that seems to be expanding at a rate of knots over the last couple of years with further plans for expansion. So what do you think that reluctance stems from? I think, I mean, the, the WNBA has been around for a long time and it's probably seen much tougher times in the sort of sports ecosystem generally. Like it only really, really feels like in the last few years that we've seen big strides made in terms of investment in women's sports and that becoming a priority for the industry. And that's something I think that's changed quite a lot. And really in the last few years, it's been a real dedicated push around it. And the WNBA has probably remained cautious. I mean, it's lost franchises. It seems other teams go to the wall and less kind of, economically favorable conditions whereas now it seems like that's that's turned a little bit and people are starting to look at the WNBA 
and and women's sport in general as a much better investment opportunity which is sad really that it hasn't been that case before but if you're going to spin positive that in itself is a good thing that like the economic case is there i mean to be honest the economic case was probably always there it's just been a lack of will I remember when we were at the Sports Pro USA conference earlier this year, George, and we had Sheila Johnson, owner of the Washington Mystics. She seemed to me, when I spoke to her about it, like quite cautious still about the media market for expansion, quite cautious still about the media market for women's sports, but with the recognition that there had been underinvestment and that maybe there was sort of a bit of a fingers burned kind of feeling amongst maybe people that had been around a bit longer. Yeah, I think when we spoke to Sheila, it was very, it was almost a frustration at the lack of media coverage and that the media coverage still was lagging behind maybe some other areas of investment when it comes to women's sports. Josh, a recent sale in the Seattle Storm, a minority stake valued the franchise at just over $150 million, which is, I think estimates say it's around 15 times the valuation of franchises previously. Do you think examples like that and investments like that really provide that rock solid business case to look at expansion? Or do you think that those factors have been bubbling away for a lot longer than that? I think definitely there's a stronger case. I mean, you're seeing, I mean, obviously a different sport, but the NWSL with that sort of expansion, you're sort of seeing the money that's sort of being thrown around in terms of how much it would cost to sort of bring a, a franchise like that. I think that's a sign of obviously how the league sort of made steady progress up into 2023. But also obviously, you know, women's sport beyond sort of recently has obviously taken steps to get to a, a level where it is like that. And you're sort of seeing with the WNBA with the sort of more charter flight. They've been sort of making huge steps to sort of improve the standing and professionalism of the league. So I feel like it's a combination of both, I think. Yeah. Tom, when it comes to expansion, a lot of people, you know, a, a phrase that's thrown around quite a lot is build it and they will come. Or, you know, we've talked a little bit about the numbers here that seems to make a really overwhelming case for expansion. And certainly there's the intention there. However, you know, when talking about that expansion, Kathy Engelbert's talked about the huge amount of research and due diligence that is involved in that. I think a quote from her was that they did a data analysis of 100 cities, demographics, psychographics, and they looked at the NCWA women's viewership, various arenas, and Fortune 500 countries. So what are some of the primary factors that drive expansion, which you know cities or, or regions are selected for that? I think, to be honest, quite a lot of the time. So like you can, you can take a lot of those metrics and you can be really smart about it and you can... Um, say, look, oh well, we we don't think there's a we don't think there's an economic case here. But what I think we really need, and this has been shown elsewhere, I think most notably with Angel City in the NWSL, is actually just drive and will to do it. Angel City, so that's a NWSL expansion team, um, started play at the start of the 2022 season, backed by a lot of celebrities. That's in its favour. Has a really key figurehead in Julie Ehrman driving it. Has an amazing purpose-driven sponsorship partnership model. But it was entering an already really crowded LA market, right? LA is a Lakers town. Everyone will say that forever. Even when the LA Clippers, the other uh, the other NBA team in in LA, like Steve Ballmer is spending a lot of money currently to make that into a second team in the end in the NBA. It's not having the impact that perhaps you'd have thought for the level of stars that he's attracted. The fact that he's building a new venue in Inglewood. But there's like, it's not just the NBA. You've got the LA Chargers, you've got the LA Rams, both in the NFL, massive, massive franchises, but don't always sell out their home. Um, you've got LA Galaxy and LAFC playing football, but Angel City decided to enter that market anyway and have proven that you can do it because 
it's a completely unique audience for a different sport. Now, I'm not saying that you could end up with another WNBA team in LA. I don't think you could. It's far too crowded a marketplace. But that shows that it's not necessarily down to the correct setting of the ground. It comes down to the people that drive the business. And actually, it's going to take someone to step up and say, I want and I think I can make this a success. And there is an opportunity here that I think I can make happen. I think far too often in business, we look at like, we overanalyze a situation and actually it can come down to purely just the will of someone to make it happen. Now, you can't force something to happen in a dead market in something where it just would never work. But I don't think there's that many cities in the US that couldn't feasibly support another WNBA team. It's a sport, it's a property that attracts major national viewership. It's big stars, are very bankable, highly marketable. So it just takes someone to stick out the hand and say, yep, I'm going to do it, I think. That's probably not the answer that maybe like the business community wants, but actually I think it's... <laughs> what uh, it needs. <laughs> yeah, I, I, sometimes it is, isn't it? It's just a case of being like, yeah, look, we're going to make this happen. We can do it. And all you've got to look at is what other people have done to be like, okay, yeah, we can probably make this happen. I think one of my favorite things about the Angel City story that is equally applicable here is it's not just drive and will, it's vision. Mm. And there's a vision for these clubs that sees women's sports and and, and particularly the Angel City with its purpose-driven partnerships, with its alternative and alternative approach to the way it does things, is that they're not looking for slices of the same pie. This is not about distributing the existing sporting audience um, equally amongst these different franchises. Actually, it's about creating a whole new fan base and it's creating a whole new demographic and group of people that are attracted not just to that sport, but to sport in general. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's you're not going to be a catch-all solution for every person in the city, right? You've got to pick your audience correctly. And, you know, we've seen with women's soccer, obviously, they've at times they've gone younger even, and it's worked in some galvanizing younger people to watch top-level women's soccer. So for sure, I agree with that, that women's basketball, whoever brings in a franchise to another city is definitely going to have to pick sort of what audience carefully and sort of pick what targets they want to aim for. Well, let's let's look at another big factor that has driven some of that expansion conversation, which is the Scripps TV deal being signed with the WNBA, an additional broadcast partnership to the current one that exists with ESPN, and a significant bump in revenue and a significant opportunity to grow the reach of the league as well, Tom. Yeah, that's one of the things I think that we um, should probably appreciate about the the WNBA is that like it, it doesn't have the mass broadcast reach currently partly because of the deals that it has in place but it has inventory to sell and going back to the previous point if you added another team that's additional inventory that you could then add and that's more games for a broadcaster to buy even within the existing makeup and in the existing schedule there's clearly enough there to cash in on if there's a willing partner willing to take that risk and adding to that momentum for for, for women's sports in general is this deal uh, this is new for this season uh, the ESPN deal expires at the end of next season. And then there's a chance for the WNBA to completely redraw how its broadcast is done and, and what it does with it and find its audience, find potential new broadcast partners, look at different distribution models. I mean, it doesn't currently have a major streaming platform on board. You'd think that would probably be something that would be like a, a solid addition to that broadcast partnership roster especially given the, the ages involved with the WNBA and the, the, the audiences for, for women's sports skewing younger than men's sport generally. And then also the success of the NCAA 
Women's March Madness tournament. Like we're coming off of one of the like most successful Women's March Madness tournaments ever in terms of broadcast reach. And those players feed directly into the WNBA. So there's clearly people that want to watch women's basketball and know who these players are. What the WNBA has the opportunity to do is to continue telling that story for those people. To me, there's got to be an expansion in that space, I think, for the WNBA to come. And if it doesn't, they need to be asking themselves why. And Josh, unsurprisingly, some of the underlying viewership metrics are very positive for the WNBA and uh, reflects the wider trend that's happening in women's sports looking at a 16% increase on viewership compared to the last season, as Tom's already mentioned, March Madness viewership outstripping the men. A important mandate then going into the next broadcast deal in which to to really take the league to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what the WNBA can show to companies like ESPN when it comes around to sort of negotiating the next deal is, you know, this, this Scripps deal is a regular Friday night it sort of creates an event like Thursday night football. Like, you know, you know where where you're going to find the WNBA on a Friday night. You know what time it is. It's just like more accessible to people. And, you know, it will demonstrate, obviously, it's it's a deal that, you know, Scripps owns so many sort of local TV stations. So it's a massive sort of deal for reach. And with that experience and sort of hopefully a positive experience, it can then go to the likes of ESPN and say, we should have a regular time slot maybe, or we should have a base in which the audience can still find you really easily. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how it pans out. And it's definitely a big deal for the WNBA for sure. Kathy Engelbert, when she spoke about the deal and particularly its valuation, talked actually about a, a disconnect between the metrics themselves and then the, the figures that are quoted. So one thing she said that I thought was really interesting is, you know, incorporating a lift from the Women's March Madness she believes that the league is benchmarked at the same level or above some of the smaller men's professional leagues, yet that their media rights outstrip the WNBAs by 12 to 15 times. So how far removed are these media valuations from some of the numbers that sit behind them? And and how do you think they can begin to close that gap over the next year or two as that tendering process begins? Um, I think when it comes to sort of closing the gap, I mean... It's going to come down to, obviously, you guys have heard women's sport being sort of undervalued for so long. And I feel like, again, with the sort of reach that how it'll have on, on scripts and sort of we'll see what the audiences look like. But as sort of those audiences grow, then it'll build that case for the WMA. They won't have to say much because the product will sort of speak for itself, right? And the audiences will speak for itself. So I feel like for sure it'll come down to what those broadcasters are sort of willing to pay is is another thing. You know, it's a tough market at the moment with sort of ESPN and sort of the likes sort of coming back on on their sub operations at the moment. So, but I hope it sort of leads to a bit of a boon in terms of the, the revenue for them because again, it's a, it's as we've sort of said, it's a sport that deserves and gets that attention and hopefully deserves the same in return financially. Um, Tom, but before we we move on, I, I did want to just explore that disconnect a little bit further between some of the the underlying metrics and then the valuations themselves. And there does seem to be a discrepancy between them, particularly when compared to women's sports. Why do you think that is? Is that macroeconomic factor in the sense that, you know, just the the hugely rising valuations of men's sports just squeezes the available cost? There is. I mean, what do you think is driving that disconnect? I want to go back to uh, the new era breakfast at Sports Pro Live recently. And um, uh, we had Charlie Zeiser from DAZN uh, and someone asked a sort of a similar question. And I can't repeat exactly verbatim what she said, because otherwise we can't put this on YouTube. But she basically said that currently broadcasters pay more for men's properties that aren't as good as women's properties and don't have the same metrics. 
for no real reason. And, and like, it's going to be historical. It's going to be the people making decisions. It's going to be like a merging of lots of different factors as to why like, that's the case. And it's just probably at, at some point just making, like changing people's minds, making them reassess the value of something, tearing up the rule book a little bit and saying, like, this has been going on for too long. It's wrong. It doesn't make sense. Like the, the the numbers don't add up here. Either you're overpaying for this thing or you're underpaying for this thing. The feeling probably is that it's the latter. So it's probably a few different factors and uh, those aren't going to change without kind of persistent campaigning, persistent pushing of that narrative that, that there needs to be better recognition financially for women's sports and, and the WNBA being a premium example of that from the industry. And that, that's something that like has to be called for a little bit. And I think there's a there's an interesting case of that going on now, right, with the Women's World Cup. FIFA kind of taking a little bit of a stand with broadcast rights for the major European territories, and they, they've made quite they've made quite a song and dance of it. Gianni Infantino's like mentioned it a few times now. It might not work on this occasion, but what it does do is that it it kind of keeps building that narrative and that momentum for that property um, to be recognised in the way that it deserves to be. Yeah, they're almost, I think the, the FIFA example is an interesting one. It, it, it almost seems opportunistic from some broadcasters that there is, you know, with the Women's World Cup, there's almost the ability to underpay because there is the need to have it on, on TV, potentially, you know, the impact of a less favorable broadcasting window. And, you know, there is that opportunity to undervalue it further. And FIFA's stance has attracted a little bit of criticism in the sense that, you know, a media blackout would be catastrophic for the growth of the women's game, particularly given the opportunity it's had over the past few seasons. But that's the exact narrative that broadcasters are able to play into and are able to be opportunistic towards. So there is something quite admirable in the way that they've been so hardline. Yeah, I think the criticism for FIFA stems from the fact that like it undervalues women's football itself and has done historically for ages and is now choosing a time to make a stand, which is probably too late in the eyes of many, and that's probably right. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to take a stand now and doesn't mean that it, that, that like it, it isn't being undervalued. When it comes to the, the Women's World Cup, there's a lot of things that are being banned around as like pre-excuses, which I don't buy into, the time zones being one the scheduling being another, like just kind of the fact that people who don't look at numbers saying, well, no one watches it. Like that's just not the case. They, it, it does take a bit of jumping up and down for that to happen. There's no, there's, there's not going to be a blackout of the women's world cup. There's people, someone is going to show it like the, the, the right still is going to get done because it'd be absolutely mad to not. Just brinksmanship on behalf of both parties. A, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit of brinksmanship on behalf of both parties. And like, then this means the next time this deal comes around, and for the next Women's World Cup, when perhaps like the, the broadcast windows are more favourable, there are no excuses. You can't go, well, I mean, we, we paid less last time because, you know, it was in Australia and it was the middle of the night. It, that's not, that's not going to be the case always going forward. They're not, there's, you're not going to be able to have that excuse. That's going to be a really interesting case, I think, for the whole industry. And an interesting, and like a, a positive stance taken by FIFA, even if taken maybe for the, maybe for the wrong reasons at the wrong time. Now, speaking of being undervalued, it's not all rosy in the WNBA garden when it comes to some of the numbers being talked about. One in particular being the collective bargaining agreement between the WNBA players and the WNBA itself. Tom, can you give me a bit of a rundown of some of the tensions there? So the, the WA 
the WNBA uh, collective bargaining agreement was last signed in 2020, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, and I think some of the tensions really arise from the fact that the WNBA is only really able to play with a certain pot of money, partly because of the, the fact that it's not able to get as much income from its broadcast rights as, as other properties do. You'll always hear both sides of this argument. Like, well, we can't afford to pay them because we don't get this much money. We can't guarantee this X much salary because actually that would bankrupt the league. The last uh, collective bargaining agreement was eight years. It was signed in 2020 and it gave players a 53% increase in their pay, essentially, like at a base level, meaning that the sort of like the average salary would be 130,000 and top players could earn more than half a million a year. I think one of the things about the collective bargaining agreement and the WBA is that currently it doesn't really provide the security for those WBA players to just play in a WNBA. You've got to think that like, They'll play, a, they'll play their season in the WNBA and then they've got to go overseas and play for another team in another league in another country to make not as much money as NBA players. I don't think at this stage WNBA players are calling to be paid as much as NBA players. I think they would if they were earning as much from their TV deal and their, their, their franchises were earning as much. But like you wouldn't have situations like the Brittany Griner situation where she's held in a Russian like, prison because she's over there playing for her her European team in the off season, just to like make sure that she's maximizing her earning potential. That's an outrageous situation. Yeah, that's the right word for it. She shouldn't be trying to transport drugs through an airport. That's a terrible idea. Whatever your country you're in, especially if you're in Russia. But like, let's let's not kind of. I don't think there's any. I don't think any blame should be placed on her for being like. For she shouldn't be in that situation to start with. 10 months in a Russian prison for the fact that you've had to go and top up your wages somewhere else is, is pretty outrageous when you're a professional athlete. I mean, just spinning it around the other way around, like LeBron James plays for one team. He does that. Anything extra he has on top of that is like not related to his team. So what if, for example, and I'm, I'm sure this situation has arisen before, WNBA player goes to play in Europe during the off season and to earn money, then gets injured, like Playing, playing in that league and has to come back to has to come back to the WNBA and can't get a contract because they've spent their time rather in the off season rather than resting and improving, topping up their salary for in front of smaller rivals in a league that's just not got the like shouldn't have the financial heft and doesn't have the financial heft as its main as their main breadwinner. So yeah, the kind of whether or not they'll they'll opt out of this uh, this this current one is a is an open question. The, the 2020 deal was widely viewed as quite a positive step, but the the sort of the share the players' share of financial revenue dropped to 9.3 percent during 2022 season, whereas in the NBA they earn 51 percent of basketball related income. Yeah, that's a staggering stat, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it, it really is. And like, so uh, I think with the upcoming rights deal, there's a chance that might happen. Particularly when the, the, the CBA that was announced had a provision for 50-50 revenue sharing. Yeah. From 2021 under the the elusive certain targets being met. You'd have to think there's a pretty severe underperformance on targets if it's dropping to 9.3% compared to a potential 50%. Yeah, and like it's always the way in labour deals, isn't it? That the people who actually end up hurting from certain targets not being met aren't the people that are performing and actually the, the product here, which is the players, it's the people making the decisions. I think that's the problem. You can you could you could levy that charge at pretty much any business, couldn't you? But like it, it's always going to be the people at the bottom who who feel the pinch. And in 2023, 
in the WWA, that shouldn't be that shouldn't be happening. Yeah, it's uh, certainly an area that needs to be addressed um, in the midst of, of plenty of other good news stories when it comes to the WNBA. So we'll be keeping an eye on that going forward. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I just need to take a quick break to tell you about Edmonton. Edmonton is a vibrant urban centre in the heart of the wilderness, the largest northernmost metropolis and the capital of Alberta, Canada. Experience what 18 hours of sunlight a day feels like in the summer, or how the first snowfall transforms the river valley in the winter. With sports fans who come out in droves to support their favourite teams and athletes, whether it's hockey, football or soccer, you can feel the energy and excitement in the air at any sporting event in Edmonton. No matter the season, Edmonton is made to host sporting events, organisations and athletes from around the world. What makes Edmonton a premier destination for hosting world-class sporting events? From the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2015 to the recent 2022 Style Experience FIS Snowboarding Big Air World Cup, Edmonton is not afraid of going above and beyond for rights holders, even if it means building a literal mountain in the middle of their football stadium. Edmonton's state-of-the-art facilities, including Rogers Place and Commonwealth Stadium, are among the best in the world, and their experienced event organiser ensures that every event is executed with precision and professionalism. Explore Edmonton's sports and culture team attracts, develops and supports more than 50 world-class sporting events in the region each year. They work closely with event right holders to enhance and execute sporting events of all kinds. From triathlon to soccer and downhill ice cross, they love it all. Explore Edmonton has a trusted network of partners, including a close connection with the city of Edmonton, who all contribute to the success of your event. That includes securing political and financial support, working out logistics, and making sure you connect with the people you need to reach. To learn more, visit edmontonsportspro.com. That's all one word, edmontonsportspro.com. Now, gents, it it wouldn't be a sports show podcast without me trying to to shoehorn in a cricketing story of some description. But this week, I do think it's well well justified and well-deserved. Tom, have you been keeping an eye on the ICC's recently proposed revenue distribution model? This is a story that, like, emerged last week i believe it was a times uh, exclusive but don't quote me on that sorry if it wasn't it continues a trend that i think is very worrying and one that is also massively unsurprising about how the finances of cricket are being largely dictated by india now i don't have a problem per se with the finances of cricket largely being dictated by india because it is the biggest market in in other sports you reward the biggest players but these reports suggested that India is going to be basically awarded 40% or 38% of the ICC's central income, the next highest being the ECB, England Wales Cricket Board, which would get just under 7%. Now, that is a huge, huge disconnect. You might be able to kind of make the case as to why India gets that, but at the same time, that is not going to grow the game of cricket. So so the the rest of the breakdown on that, I I can't can't remember all of the figures, but Cricket Australia, I think, was next, which was around 6% mark. What was the, and then from there, the others were all around four. Is that right? Yeah, it's around four. I think one of the particularly damning stats is that cricket's obviously split between test playing nations and associate nations, there being a significant financial disparity already that exists between test playing nations and associate nations, but only 11% 
of that revenue is will be distributed to the associate nations and already in in tournaments that's reducing the opportunity for associate nations to take part it's definitely a harmful model that is designed to strengthen the stranglehold on cricket certainly by india and to a much smaller extent australia and england and without a shadow of a doubt, away from the associate playing nations. Josh, I, I wanted to get your views because I think we're all, none of us are naive enough to think that sport is going to act in, in an altruistic way and is going to be, you know, totally focused to bringing the highest level of competition and creating the greatest amount of equality. I think we've all seen too many examples where that's not the case. But it strikes me that, that cricket's almost taken this to another level. Nearly 40% going to a single nation, one that is already hugely outstripping its fellow counterparts in terms of revenues, in terms of commercial contribution to the overall pot. It's going to do more harm than good. Yeah. I mean, it's strange, isn't it? It just feels a bit of a, not a backward step, but you know, we know that cricket's obviously trying to make a play for the Olympics and trying to sort of broaden its reach out to other countries beyond the big three. And then I mean, I know this is still reported, this isn't the confirmed plan yet, but then if it sort of launches this plan and then it just sort of disincentivizes the other nations from sort of investing in cricket and Western Indies aren't included in sort of the big three or Pakistan's after that and then there's a whole list of nations. But if you're a top West Indies cricketer, you'd be more incentivized surely to play in a franchise competition than play for your national team if your cricket board can't afford to pay as big a salary because of how this model's shaping out. So it has some pretty damaging implications and you know whether whether there's gonna be enough opposition to sort of amend it significantly remains to be seen but that's sort of the things that i can think of it's just it means those players who play in nations that are not the big three are probably gonna be more incentivized to turn their back on international cricket yeah i think that's exactly right looking at the pie chart that exists in the times article that talks about the story it is truly laughable really to think of a big three it's a big one um it, it's a monolith really and the rest of the nations are are so far behind i also thought the criteria that's being used to judge the distribution is laughable actually the distribution model is equally weighted to begin with um and then it is from there adjusted based on three primary factors first being cricketing history the second being ICC event performance for both men's and women's teams. And the third being the commercial contribution to the ICC revenue that exists. Obviously, that, that revenue is almost entirely really driven by Indian broadcast market and the Indian broadcast contracts. That's only increasing as well, particularly as we're seeing fragmentation between the digital and the linear rights, which is already happening across bilateral cricket in India, not just in the IPL. Um, but the idea that it's based on cricket history and ICC event performance, for me, it, it's almost like the wolf in sheep's clothing that financial fair play in football exists as. It, it just entrenches these historic cricketing boards that unable to grow and expand in the same way that the Indian market is and really harms, Josh, as you said, is the Sri Lankas, the West Indies, the Pakistans of, of the world is, is really difficult. And we're seeing that ICC events, uh, the last three World Cups have been won by the home nations. And it just seems to perpetuate this cycle further and further and further and creates that gulf. And Josh, as you said, the logical conclusion 
to that is that players are disenchanted. They are more incentivized to play in the overseas franchise leagues. And surprise, surprise, who's controlling the overseas franchise leagues pretty much around the world? It's the IPL franchises. And that feeds back into the BCCI. So it's another damning indication really of where cricket's moving as a sport and the drop off in power that the international game holds both from a financial point of view from a revenue generation point of view and also from just a fan engagement point of view it's another nail in the coffin can i just play devil's advocate slightly for a second and switch this around a little bit so in football uh, we sort of in in europe in the west we accept the kind of the primacy of uefa as the biggest like regional confederation and really kind of Europe as the central market for football where a lot of the decisions around how global football is run are made like the FIFA is based in Europe its president is is European as much as he probably wants to think of himself in a Boris Johnson world king mold but are we bleating here because we as two Englishmen and someone who's born in Australia we're seeing the power of a sport that we used to control taken away by the BCCI's grip on the ICC. So Jay Shah, obviously, he heads up the uh, the finance committee for the ICC, but is still deeply involved in the, the BCCI. There's plenty of examples of other executives from the ECB and Cricket Australia sitting into different different features of the ICC. But there's like, I don't think it's unfair to say that the ICC is very much under the control of the BCCI and kind of acts very much in the interest of it. I think that revenue distribution formula that you mentioned previously, George, is a prime example of that. Like, If that was being drawn up in the interest of cricket, you wouldn't ever design it that way, would you? You wouldn't design it so that it's weighted around historical performance and commercial income. You'd actually weight it so that it was driven around distribution from the biggest players, the people that the, the countries can afford to send their incomes to the smaller nations. And Whereas this is set up more in that traditional trickle-down economics mindset which is i mean borne out to be wildly flawed but at the same time so to come back to my original devil's advocate point in this is it are we are we just being bitter or are we or should we just accept that india is the main controller of this in the same way that europe is the main controller of football and that's kind of the way it has to be because that's its biggest market my thoughts on that uh, in bitterness from from an english point of view or from that big three point of view i mean this doesn't harm Australia and England to anywhere near the same extent that it harms other cricketing nations. I mean, Josh, you called out the West Indies. They're probably a particularly extreme example. The, the, the same with um, other countries like Sri Lanka, for instance. Um, test player nations that are just still starved of the investment that they need to remain truly competitive in the same way. India's very strong position in the cricketing market is deserved. They have been innovative. They have driven the game forward immensely. Cricket would have, you know, a fraction of the relevance that it holds today without the impact of some of those decisions. And it is deservedly king of the castle when it comes to the cricketing ecosystem. But what this revenue distribution model does is it will begin to, to kill competition. And when you come to ICC events, it's impossible really to, and bilateral cricket in particular, it's impossible to create a competitive landscape. And you can't ask players to play for their national boards when they're earning a fraction of what they could do elsewhere in, in other leagues around the world. And that's the harm that's being done. So for me, it's the crossroads that cricket finds itself at now 
I've been outspoken on this podcast before that I don't think necessarily the evolution towards the franchise model is the worst thing in the world. If that's where, you know, the fan bases are going to, if that's where the commercial sponsors are more interested in, if that's what's going to grow the game, and if that's what, you know, the public wants, then that's important that the game evolves in that way and it evolves to meet those needs and to evolve with modern society. You know, the, the, the old-fashioned way I think of doing things is often seen in England in particular, to a lesser extent Australia, it doesn't work and it hasn't worked for many years. And the old saying goes, you need to evolve or die. But it can't be under the pretenses of supporting the international game because this just clearly doesn't do that. Yeah, I think that like the, the big one plan as this is kind of badged on the times is quite accurate. That point is, I think, like the most pertinent is the fact that cricket doesn't exist without the other team. Like no sport exists without the other team. And it's often something that's overlooked. It's overlooked in like the talks around the European Super League when it comes to the competitiveness there. Yeah. It's 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 uh, the same in like any sort of closed shot franchise model. It's like what you're ignoring is the fact that, that like you might exist as your thing individually. Big six football club, India, franchise model. But do you succeed without the other things in the ecosystem, without the like without the smaller clubs? You might be able to deal with some of them, but you're going to need someone to play against eventually. If you don't continue to invest in that, then you will run out of options. And it's the pathways, right? Yeah. Where where this money needs to go to is not just funding elite performance. This is funding grassroots cricket. It's funding coaching programs. It's funding the essential foundations and the essential infrastructure that grows the game internationally. There is no franchise leagues around the world without a strong South Africa, without a strong West Indies, a strong Afghanistan, a strong Ireland, the, all of the associate nations, you know, that, that make these fantastic leagues, they come from the best players playing in those leagues. So this is not just about, you know, it's going to impact the, the quality of a, a bilateral series of Pakistan versus England, because they probably aren't going to exist in five to 10 years time, if we're being totally honest. So for me, it's about having, you know, these strong foundations at the core of cricket that can help grow the game around the world. And this, this doesn't do that. It's probably about time we moved on from cricket. I agree. Could, could be here all day. Now, finally, Josh, I wanted to ask you about the Ottawa Senators and the the recent takeover that's happened there. So can you give me a little pricey of what's happened? Yeah, so the Senators were put on sale towards the end of last year by the Melnick family and attracted interest pretty straight away. I think early reports from the first round of bidding indicated there were about nine different parties sort of trying to land the franchise and some willing to pay as much as 900 now a billion US dollars, which would be a record fee for a NHL franchise. It's been a bit of a roller coaster of a acquisition process. We've seen sort of numerous music stars and various Hollywood personalities one by ones have aligned themselves with different bidders. It's been, I mean, if you're probably, if you're from the city of Ottawa, it's probably, it's headline news every day, you're sort of seeing who's, who's in, who's out, sort of, it's, it's been a wild process to sort of watch. And the final round of bids was on Monday. And we believe that from just sort of the reports going around that four bidders remain for the franchise. Michael Ann Lauer, who's a healthcare billionaire. You've got the Kimmel family who uh, manage a real estate portfolio. There's a Toronto billionaire, Steve Apostolopoulos. I probably butchered his name, but he's also made a bid apparently. And so has uh, Nico Sparks, who's pulled together a consortium of people that reportedly includes the Rubin brothers who obviously helped back the Newcastle takeover and Snoop Dogg, the famous rap 
superstars. So that's where we are. And we now wait for the senators to sort of pick their preferred bidder. It's interesting you talked about some of the names there, particularly some of the celebrity names. It seems that buying a sporting franchise is in vogue when it comes to the celebrity community. Why do you think that is? And you talked about that billion dollar price tag, which would be a record in the NHL. What do you think are driving these huge valuations and particularly some of the names behind them? The NHL's in an interesting spot in which, you know, we've just seen the Washington commanders of the NFL be sold for six billion, right? Not many people are going to have six billion in their bank account ready to spend on an NFL franchise, right? And and even the Phoenix Suns and obviously the WNBA WNBA Mercury that have sold together for four billion, but to Matt Ishbia, again, not many people are going to have that four billion. So the NHL feels like, I guess, the next league in which you can get a team for maybe a more affordable price and is more affordable for most people compared to say the NBA or NFL to land sort of a premium North American sports franchise. So I feel like that's what's driven a lot of interest in it. With the Senators, it's quite interesting because they are planning to switch rinks as well to build a new stadium. So there's the possibility of building sort of not only a new rink, but obviously a new entertainment district, a way to sort of increase revenue streams. So the possibility of that project is obviously sort of fueled it as well. And you mentioned the price tags of going up to, you know, a, a billion. That's It's good sort of indication of where the league's at at the moment. It's pretty healthy. It's in a healthy state. TV ratings are sort of up at the moment for the playoffs as well. And it does feel as though it is a pretty good time to sort of get in for the NHL level before it has, and it probably has a few more steps to grow as well compared to say the NBA, NFL, which is already at probably a step beyond what most people can afford. Yeah. For me, there's a, also a really interesting wrinkle to this. And you mentioned, you alluded to some Hollywood names there, but the one that's kind of been most prominent the wrinkles there. is, uh, it's, it's wrinkles all over my face at the moment. <laughs> but one of the, one of the more interesting names that's been linked with the, with the franchise, uh, is Ryan Reynolds, the current owner of Wrexham, who's increasingly becoming a, a fascinating player in the global sports ecosystem, I think. Not just because of the fact that he is a big name Hollywood actor, but because what he's done with Wrexham, but also what he brings to a league as an individual. There are plenty of power players in the sort of NHL ownership ecosystem, as there are in the NBA and the and MLB and the NFL. But what they aren't is they aren't able to bring a kind of modern content like nous to the league in a way that Ryan Reynolds does. And I think it was really telling that the sort of back end of last year, we saw Gary Bettman, the NHL commissioner, his deputy, urging each of these consortiums to make sure that Ryan Reynolds is included because they can see what the options are when you bring someone like that into the fold because it's like it adds another string of storytelling. So the Toronto Maple Leafs are one of the uh, teams that are featured in Amazon's All or Nothing series, didn't really land in the same way as some of those other All or Nothing series. But if you have someone with with Ryan Reynolds ties owning a team, that adds a completely different dimension to what you're able to do with with that kind of storytelling. And that is becoming really, really valuable to any kind of professional sports team's model. It's like it's not just the live; it's the additional stuff that you can do around it. And if you've got someone with a really proven track record of big ties into big media organizations and capable of delivering something that's had such an outweighted impact, like imagine what a Canadian actor could do with a Canadian NHL team. So that's, we're talking about the biggest market for ice hockey in really in North America, like with a real stronghold of where it is, bringing that onto the party and bringing that, that content expertise, that non, that non live expertise, is something that people really want. So it's, it's really interesting factor to this. It was reported last week that the Remington group that Ryan Reynolds was part of was actually dropping out of the race. 
but the other sort of bidding consortium might be interested in adding Reynolds to their potential ownership groups too. For me, really interesting to see where that goes, where it folds out. Not sure that Snoop Dogg in the weekend brings quite the same level to the party, but yeah, very interesting to see exactly sort of where that goes. And Josh, when can we expect to hear the outcome of the final stage of that process? Reports have indicated that Galitioto Sports, I think that's how you pronounce the name, are the firms of managing the sale. They all sort of now, having got all the final bids together, they'll sort of sift through them and sort of pick out a preferred bidder. So we sort of, I think the timeline is we'll expect to hear from that maybe sometime before the season ends within either this month next month something like that and then obviously the transaction would then have to be sent to approval for the nhl i know there's a few with ann lauer for example he's a minority owner in the canadians and he currently sits on the sort of board of governors the nhl board of governors so he would have to sell his stake in the canadians to sort of get that deal done if he was the chosen bidder so there'll be a few sort of with him i guess there's a wrinkle there to sort of go through but with everyone else it will be you assume once a transaction sort of ratified then hopefully the sense of a new owner by the next season we'll keep our eyes peeled for any updates josh and tom as always thank you very much for joining me on this week's podcast and, and we'll speak soon thank you thanks george